This podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia, a major national partner of the Royal Flying Doctor Service and also the sponsor of the Flying Doctor podcast series. They both held the rope at each end and dragged her across this raging river. You have to go right, probably do things you probably never do in a city hospital just to save life. We have a young lady unconscious. Topic Hi, I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. We jokingly call hatch, match and dispatch. So a hatch is the baptism, the matching is the weddings, and the dispatch, of course, is the funerals. If at first you don't succeed, parachuting's not for you. Right. (laughs) Before I start this episode, I need to give you some context as to why I'm doing the interview with this wonderful man. There is a famous story from 1917 of a stockman by the name of Jimmy Darcy who had suffered massive internal injuries when his horse fell in a cattle stampede. They had to take him on an 80-kilometre journey in a horse-drawn cart to the nearest settlement of Halls Creek in the far north of Western Australia. Jimmy Darcy needed immediate life-saving surgery and with the nearest doctor being thousands of kilometres away in Perth, The postmaster at Halls Creek, by the name of Fred Tuckett, had to perform emergency surgery on the kitchen table with little more than a penknife and some morphine. A doctor in Perth by the name of Dr Joe Holland instructed Tuckett, via Morse code of all things, on how to carry out the surgery. The surgery was actually successful, surprisingly, but malaria then set in. For days, newspaper readers around Australia were gripped by the story of the young stockman's desperate struggle for life, as reports continued to circulate through the postal telegraph system. Dr Holland made a mercy dash, and it took him almost two weeks to get to Halls Creek. And unfortunately, Jimmy Darcy died just a few hours before Dr Holland arrived. The story of Jimmy Darcy was very real to Reverend John Flynn, a man who was ordained in 1911 and travelled extensively in the bush performing missionary work. Flynn worked tirelessly to help people who were suffering from the isolation and harshness of the Aussie outback. Flynn saw firsthand how the lack of medical care was heavily impacting inland residents and travellers, and he had a strong purpose to create what he called a mantle of safety for those in the bush. He did this when he founded an era medical service that is today known as the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is all relevant to my guest, the venerable Dr. Royce Thompson. He currently works as the pastor for three rural New South Wales communities near the ACT border. But in the 1970s, he worked for five years as a flying padre in remote Western Australia. Padre is a Spanish word for priest. And Royce's ministerial parish spanned more than 160,000 square kilometres. He would personally fly or drive across this vast region of remote Australia to provide ministerial services to the remote stations, communities and townships, often working alongside the Royal Flying Doctor Service as they brought medical care to the region. 
I wanted to interview Royce as he worked in that same Kimberley region as the patient Jimmy Darcy, who inspired the creation of the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Also, Royce has personally worked to bring ministerial services to remote areas, just as Reverend John Flynn did, so he can shed light on what remote life was like in the late 1970s. G'day, Royce. Great to be with you. You first studied science at Monash University in Melbourne and ended up assisting the Atomic Weapons Test Safety Committee monitoring radioactive fallout from the French tests in the Pacific. What impact did that work have on you? Well, it was quite interesting. We would be monitoring rainwater, dust, deep sea fish, human bones and um, flour from all over Australia and New Guinea. And uh, the French would explode something in the Pacific. They'd tell us it was a certain size. But we would, uh, in 14 days, we would see the radioactive fallout uh, uh, start to rise in the, these various things we're monitoring in Western Australia and work its way across Australia. So in 14 days, the fallout had travelled around the world and came, was not only had rained out on our ground, had been absorbed by the grass, eaten by the cows, produced in milk. So, uh, and within 14 days, and we could work out roughly uh, from the amount of fallout uh, just how big the bomb was to keep an eye whether the French were telling us the truth or not about how big the bombs were. So That's just amazing. So you got involved in this straight out of university. Was well, this sort of a, um, a, an eye-opening experience for you? Well, it certainly was uh, in, intriguing because uh, it was a, f- a fascinating time because um, we, as we had produced our reports, there was a lot of things going on. Um, Side of saying, well, you know, it's probably only 10% of background radiation, so we could probably put up with that. Um, the, the government was deciding whether it would, uh, the reactor, reactor we put in Lucas Heights, whether it was going to be one that gave us fission products could make our own bomb or fusion products. So uh, don't overstate that because if we say the French can't test, we won't be able to test. And so that was going on as well. Uh, there was the, um, the mother saying, if there's any chance this radioactive fallout could uh, affect my child, because you get a lot of iodine-131 falls out, that uh, is very close to calcium. And so um, that sort of thing was that question. And then the moral question that uh, could a northern hemisphere country drop all this rubbish and garbage in the southern hemisphere when none of it would virtually go to the northern hemisphere, never cross the equator. So the uh, fallout tends to circulate in the hemisphere it was uh, created in. And so uh, with these various people pressuring us to shape our reports, we had to be very careful what we put uh, as we did it. Had to wrestle all those moral questions, yeah. That's fascinating. I know that you joined the ministry in Melbourne in 1972 and you were ordained as deacon in 75 and then a priest in 1976. What led you to that decision to do God's work as a career choice after having worked on nuclear fallout? (laughs) Well, of all strange things, in the 59 Billy Graham crusade, my aunt took me along uh, to the, the crusade uh, it got so large, they had to train as a venue, and we had to go to the MCG. For the first time ever, non-players were allowed on the grass. It was like uh, lords, you know, the hallowed turf. And so um, he gave the call. All I remember Dr. Graham saying was that Christian life is fun and exciting. So as about a 10 or 11-year-old, I uh, stood up and said, I'll be in it for that. So, uh, And that started that little bit of a journey for me, and I had to then, as a more adult person, make the decision what I would do with my life. 
laboratory was interesting, but it was for uh, dealing with uh, test tubes and little planchettes and uh, you know, stuff like that. Uh, it was very uh, um, uh, a, a lonely existence, if you like. It's something you did individually on yourself with a few colleagues around you. Um, uh, but um, what, doing something where you might touch a person's life uh, is something that moved me, uh, and that's where I began to train for the ministry. And I found after doing this for nearly uh, close getting towards 50 years now, that everybody said it's fun and exciting is very true. That's been the things I've been able to do in life I cannot believe I would have ever done if I'd stayed in the laboratory. Wow. Now, you also had a passion as a from a young child or from a, from a young age to be a pilot. So when did that start to emerge as a, an ongoing passion? Well, when I got to Kununurra, my parish was, a, as I said, 160,000 square kilometres. Uh, the Kimberleys, a very remote and lonely uh, area. There's so few. Um, they, they, t- they reckon there was about um, 60,000 people in the whole parish, but I, I never met them all. <laughs> I never found that many. <laughs> and that would be a black, white and brindle. It wouldn't matter what you were, uh, they're, they're trying to get the numbers up. So, And um, it was... It was uh, for me to do a trip in my car around the parish because the Order of a Dam was in the middle, was about an 1,800-kilometre round trip. So I used to be uh, stationed visiting, visiting the stations, Aboriginal communities and hospitals. I'd be away from home 14 nights a month, every month without fail, uh, on the road, uh, camping, living in my, with my swag. And you roll out swag here, there and everywhere. And um, then... Uh, well, you had to drive around the dam. So uh, flying became a thing. Well, you could actually, it's far quicker. You fly over the dam you know, right. uh, and you could certainly get around your parish much easier. So uh, well, I learned to fly with uh, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, which trained uh, bush pilots for here and the world and Africa and New Guinea. And so we uh, were trained as procedural pilots to um, so that uh, once I did my solo, every time I took off, there was an incident you know, something could happen, lose power, lose flaps, lose something, so that you, they drilled you till you became a, um, a procedural part would just f- flick into uh, auto drive to know how to handle any unusual situation or ad- abnormal attitude, yeah. Wow, so you did your training actually out there in real No, I did. Uh, uh, um, I did a little bit of Darwin Aero Club, but that was kind of, uh, you know, as we say, weekend for warriors. Um, I went to go to Ballarat to the Missionary Aviation Fellowship College itself. Okay. And uh, so I uh, did my learning there and I did a, um, a number of endorsements. I did a night licence as well so I could fly at night as well because you can right. save you getting caught um, in the bush. Now, how did you come to um, end up out there in Western Australia? Was that something that you chose to do or was this something that you were simply – asked to uh, do is... Given a challenge, I'd been working in a parish in Melbourne. I, uh, my, uh, I'd gone to pick up my wife with our second child and as I got to the door, the phone was ringing, picked up the phone and um, then uh, they said, would you like to go out back uh, and you have your own parish in the, the outback? So uh, so we went with a, uh, I think it was about eight-week-old child, or the second child and uh, an older one. We had our third child out there. But we couldn't believe the um, – it's not just isolation. It's just the uh, the temperatures are so astounding. Uh, Kununurra is 60 uh, miles, so it was 100, 100 kilometres inland. 
And uh, so uh, you don't never got a Darwin doctor or the sea breeze. It was too far for it. So it was just stinking hot. We used to say we had three uh, months of hell followed by nine months of heaven. <laughs> <laughs> Where in the uh, wet season, uh, you um, got humidity over 40 degrees in the shade, humidity over um, up to 100%. Right. And then in the dry season, no humidity whatsoever and in the 30s. Did you uh, know what you were getting yourself into when no you accepted idea. that position? We should have realised when a mission organisation, I worked, uh, Flynn uh, did the Australian Inland Mission and uh, Kirkby did Bush Church Aid, which was the Anglican Church equivalent. Uh, and so um, uh, when we went to, they flew us up to Darwin first before we went to Kanara, and they put us up in a you know, three-star hotel. We should have realised if a mission society did that, you must be something bad was going to happen. Um, that's what happened. We uh, ended up in a house full of white ants, and we had to spend uh, five years renovating the house as well because the, the white ants had got there before us. Right. All those sort of things, just things you never got trained for. Right. And, uh, For persons who've never been to Kununurra, could you describe what the landscape is like there? Flat, and um, I, as I've got uh, khaki on now, that's the colour of the ground. <laughs> All gets very red in other places, uh, and uh, uh, just extremely hot. Um, the geomorphism is really unusual. The, uh, the rock and uh, outray, it's just a majestic uh, sense of that kind of wilderness and wildness, you know. I sometimes would be driving in my parish and uh, um, I'd drive for five hours and I wouldn't see any other sign of human existence other than the road I was on and that was just the greatest scrape in the, the dirt. Uh, and I'd pull over to a river, stop and um, boil a, um, a billy, cook a bit of steak and uh, have a meal, roll out my swag and there wouldn't be an, another human being for 100 kilometres in any direction. It's just so sparse. Now, that's the environment that uh, the um, flying doctor works in. That's the environment Flynn tried to uh, create this mantle of safety in was um, uh, for that. Uh, and so um, we, we continue that together. Um, Fabulous. Now, was it a big cultural shock for you, the young bloke from Melbourne with a young family in tow, when you came to provide ministerial services in Indigenous communities and outback stations? It is a very different culture. Yeah. Could you tell me about that? It wasn't quite so bad for me because we'd had farms and my, my dad was an oral surgeon, so um, we had a farm and I'm used to riding horses and stuff like that. But my poor wife is a real city girl. Even on our honeymoon, I took her to Port Macquarie and that's the furthest she'd ever been from her home. Right? So here we are out in the outback. Um, you could not get further away from Melbourne and stay on the mainland. And so here we are in the middle of there. And uh, so this uh, country girl of mine uh, was quite an eye-opener because culturally it's quite different. Um, my, um, the, uh, my kids all went to school with uh, more um, Aboriginal and Indigenous kids than they did... Um, um, Gutiers or Ballanders or white kids, you know, as they call them, had to learn other language. Um, and so uh, the environment the, uh, all of us had to work in, um, I would have to uh, kind of uh, preach in a kind of um, a pigeon, it's a, it's a bastardised, excuse me, bastardised uh, English language where you mix it together. So instead of saying um, Jesus uh, walked along and went towards Jerusalem uh, and called his disciples, 
I would say something like, uh, Jesus uh, been uh, gone along the track to Jerusalem and he'd been called his working boys. <laughs> and uh, they uh, together <laughs> went off to Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's and, wonderful. Yeah, so you'd um, translate it like that. And even say, you wouldn't talk about stomach, you'd talk about binge uh, and stuff like that. So even when the medical people go out, you'd have to learn their language words for it. Uh, and so uh, it was uh, things that the, and that's the environment the, that us, uh, the flying doctor and the, uh, the, both the medical staff uh, and the pilots, and I guess the nurses and the ancillary staff as well had to work in this kind of environment, which uh, for many of us was quite different. Right. And, and the nurses in the hospitals I used to visit, uh, of course, they were city nurses, most of them. Uh, and this whole cultural awareness. And then the, the nursing and the medical stuff you have to do is right on the borderline. You have to go right, probably do things you probably never do in a, uh, a city hospital just to save life. Right. Well, this is an area where there's, you know, floods and monsoon-type rains, flooded creeks and rivers and so forth. Can you tell me about the pregnant lady in Kananara who found herself flooded in? Well, and, and she was on uh, um, Nicholson Station. And uh, between uh, the, the, uh, the Kananara where we were, there was a huge, great river. They used to leave a four-wheel drive on either side of the river. The stockmen would then try and, if they had to go into town, would swim the river and then uh, grab the keys and then take the thing into town and I'd like to say. Um, but, of course, for her, what they did, the stockmen... Um, a tire, had a rope tied around himself, went up the river, jumped in and then was swept down the river to the crossing and uh, got across the other side. And then another stockman on the other side is holding uh, the other end of the rope. They wrapped it around her. Uh, this is the pregnant, the pregnant woman. woman uh, under her she's arms. in her second trimester, so she's five months pregnant. I, I think so. it was close to third trimester. Oh, okay. Uh, and because uh, she had to go and for the, see the doctor. And then... Um, then they both held the rope at each end and dragged her across the uh, the river, this raging river, uh, and uh, then he, the stockman drove her into town. Doctor rang us and said, "Look, um, she can't go back. Can you? We uh, had a visitors' flat. Most of our churches did had accommodation for people who got stranded, and um, so she uh, stayed with us till she uh, had her child, and then uh, waited um, two months before she went back. So she was a, lived with us for three months." Uh, and then she finally went back to the station, yeah. Wow. So that was not unusual, the sort of thing, ingenuity you had to use to uh, get through. Yeah. yeah. In city areas, it would be completely beyond the belief of, of most people to think of a pregnant woman being pulled across a flooded river by rope to get to see the doctor. Could we talk a little bit more about your day-to-day -day work uh, as a flying padre, because you've just, you're a man full of stories. Um, could we start off? I know that one of your roles was to carry out weddings. Um, do you have a wedding story that you could share? Well, we did, we did, and we jokingly call hatch, match, and dispatch. So a hatch is the uh, baptism, the matching is the weddings, and the dispatch, of course, is the funerals. Yeah. But on the Flying Doctor Radio, we all had Flying Doctor Radios. I, I started out with a little uh, Elko brick. It was only the size of a brick and it was very basic. You uh, had uh, crocodile clips you put on the battery of the car. You threw the aerial up over the, a tree to get enough distance and that's how you're Well, we'd listen at Natterband time, so about midday, everyone could get on and talk. 
You didn't have to follow normal procedures. And you could listen in and you'd see what was going on. Well, I could hear this wedding where the bore mechanic from Kirkimby had fallen in love with the cook from Nicholson. And uh, the stations are 300 kilometres away apart. And so anyway, they maintained this relationship and wanted to get married. So um, I could hear on the radio that uh, this was the end of the stock season. That was a good excuse for everybody to turn up. And I said, if I don't get out there early, they're going to be three parts cut before I uh, can get the wedding going, right? So anyway, so I took off uh, kind of in the dark and I arrived at the station. I had to circle for a while till it was light enough for me to be able to land. And I landed and I tied the plane down and they picked me up and took me in. Well, the so-and-sos had beaten me. They come in the night before. Some of them were pretty well primed already. So I'm walking around all the time as we're getting ready for the wedding at two o'clock in the afternoon saying, no, slow down, no, go easy. You, know, you want to remember the wedding? Oh, yeah, all right. She'll be all right. Yeah. And so anyway, we did the wedding. And you try and do the wedding as good as you can, you know. Just because in the bush doesn't mean you should cut, do any shortcuts. Why shouldn't they have all the, the thrills you normally do have and those things? So came time for the uh, groom to kiss the bride. So he puts back her. Here she is, long white dress. Here we are in something like about 38 degrees uh, and puts back the veil and goes to kiss the bride. As they started, I notice the back two rows of ringers start to struggle to their feet. And then I thought, Oh, heavens, what's going to happen here? So I said, hang well, on. You might have to explain, yeah. Royce, what is a ringer? Oh, ringers are the, uh, the stockmen. Depends what, they, they're all graded into different levels of stockmen. But these, these are the, uh, the hard and tumble, uh, rough guys, you know, there. And so, um, and the, the, the stockmen, are, they, they're staggering up and they're starting to come forward and say, hang on, what are you guys up to? So, and uh, they said, oh, we're coming to kiss the bride. <laughs> So I said, well, Lord, I didn't get any training for this in college. What am I going to do now? So suddenly I said, uh, I can't believe it. I said, sit down, you mugs, right? We're all going to have a go afterwards and I'm going to be first. So wait your turn. <laughs> all right. They said, and they fell, fell back into their seats and waited till the end of the wedding. Well, end of the wedding, they all took me up because if you've been out in stock camp uh, and you started patting your horse too much, and even the, uh, the camels start to look attractive, right? Kissing a, uh, a real woman was now something you were not going to miss out on. So everybody, she would have gone to be of a chap lips that night. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone, she took, been feeling everyone the love. kissed the bride. <laughs> this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Have you seen any of our seven large RFDS flight simulators as they move around Australia? Attending school, community or field days. Each is being towed by an Isuzu D-MAX Ute, courtesy of Isuzu Ute Australia. Reliable vehicles are imperative in the harsh Australian outback and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are the perfect match for the long distance heavy towing demands of these simulators right across Australia. To learn more, search IZZU online. Baptism. So you you carry out baptisms, as you say. Hatch. Yes, yes, a very, a very, very important life. Uh, out in front of the homesteads, they would, um, uh, under, the homesteads would have uh, bigger trees than everywhere else. So the Kimbleys, well, you used to say when you're flying, um, part of the emergency procedure, um, Always, if you're going to have to crash land, um, aim between two trees so they take your wings off 
right, and take get rid of the fuel uh, and, uh, you know, hopefully you won't catch fire. So that was part of the training we got, see. Well, I, there was always three trees, never three, two trees. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, but that, that was part of the training you had. <laughs> and so the, the bigger trees were uh, inside the homestead. They used to um, uh, dig a big hole, march a scrubber bull in, uh, uh, put it down and then uh, plant the tree on top. And they gave enough nutriment for the tree to eventually break through and uh, get into the lower water table. And the tree, they were the big trees. All the rest were stumpy. So the homesteads always had a you couple could of big see trees. a couple of really yeah. big trees that so, had, had that tree. So they'd set up a table between it, put a white cloth and made it look like an altar. And that's where we'd have our church service, our weddings, our funerals, our baptisms uh, out in the open. Do you um, have a baptism story for us? Yeah, all right. About, oh, yeah. Um, Mabel Downs it was, and uh, we're going through the baptism, doing it all perfect. You've got a nice big bowl there for the water. It comes time about to baptise the baby, put, put the thing in to get the water, to pour over the baby's head, and suddenly two dogs, every uh, stockman, you know, they always bring their uh, their dogs with them, right? Two dogs had decided to dispute territory between me and the congregation. So here they are, heckles up, about to have a go at each other. Well, they did. So they started having a go at each other. Well, that was the call for every other dog in the place to come pick sides. How many so, dogs were there? Suddenly about 30 or more dogs fighting each other between me and the congregation. <laughs> right, so the uh, stockman could stay and take it so long and then when they see their dogs being um, moored by another one's dog, they said, your dog's attacking my dog. They all jumped to their feet. So there's now... Uh, 30 dogs and 30 stockmen, right, between me and the congregation, sorting each other out. So it took about 25 minutes for them to tie up all the dogs <laughs> and to bring peace and quiet. So, How was the baby doing? Was the baby okay? Well, we, we put the baby in the shade, what was all happened, <laughs> and uh, gave it back to its mother. And then uh, we got a bit of decorum going, and I said, uh, we might go back a couple of prayers here so that um, we uh, get context again. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a bit of a rewind and then started again, got ready and I did the baptism. Do you know, uh, uh, a couple of weeks later, someone sent me a photo and uh, just as I was baptising the child, they took the photo and two dogs had already broken free and were facing each other off as well. So I had this lovely photograph of uh, two dogs facing each other between me and the congregation still. <laughs> so you never it's get trained story. for anything like that in college, no. No, no they don't train no, you for that. No, no I, I definitely and, not. So too with the, uh, the medical staff as well. I mean, with the, the flying doctor, same thing. All the things you get trained for. You've got to put another overlay of that remoteness, the uniqueness of the situation uh, puts on you that uh, really uh, tests your ability to uh, cope with the abnormal mm. uh, and uh, so that you can bring uh, some good outcome to whatever's going on from before you. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Now, tell me, Royce, um, funerals. How, how are funerals dealt with when you were out there in the 70s? Oh, I prayed pretty seriously. It happens. Uh, a, a lot of accidents, you know, people getting thrown off horses or um, vehicle accidents, things like that, or old age or drink. Yeah. There was one funeral I had was quite sad. Um, a lot of f funerals were pauper's funerals because uh, people didn't have family around and uh, you would go and do it with the undertaker. It was one, the, the, the loneliest one I ever had was just the undertaker and I are there. And uh, 100 yard, yards, um, uh, 100 metres, that'll do, uh, away was the uh, grave diggers uh, leaning on their shovels. And so uh, I looked at the undertaker and said, oh, this is pretty poor. He said, oh, well, you haven't got any family. No, no one knows. We don't really know who he is. He's just the coroner's given us permission to bury him. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And so the coroner's given permission to bury him. So, 
And uh, so I said to the grader, called out, hey, go, you mugs, come over here. And uh, no, no one's worth so little in life of the couple of us couldn't stand uh, by his grave and say goodbye. Yeah. Oh, all right, they said. So they came over, brought their shovels with them, leant on their shuffles while he finished the service, <laughs> and we, we buried him in the ground. And then you know, they took the shovels and uh, covered him up. Mm. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about the mantle of safety that John Flynn wanted to create for those that live in the bush and what you saw and experienced in this regard. You mentioned the Flying Doctor radio before. Did you always carry it with you? Yes, I had the uh, this uh, little the Elko brick for a while. Then um, I got a Coden in the car and an HF aerial, so it, um, the motor was much more powerful and a much better thing. It was always for me. It was a matter of safety. If anything happened, I could always call in. Right, where, and since you were travelling these yeah. amazing distances and always out, as and I about. say, you, know, you travel for five hours not to see another human being. Right. So if something happened to you. I mean, I used to carry uh, two spare tyres, uh, a jerry can of fuel as well, um, a cable, a, a tubing that I could hook the jerry can up to my fuel pump in case I, someone put a hole in the, the petrol tank, uh, a week's supply of food, a week's supply of water and a medical kit um, you carried with you uh, all the time. So that was all. So your car was, boot was full. Yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. And then you had your swag often... If you couldn't fit in the boot, it was on the back seat. So. Was wildlife um, an issue when you were driving your vehicle? Was it was it um, set up or prepared for meeting uh, a special roo? bull bar on it? Um, the the cane grass and the kimberleys grows right up to the edge of the road, so uh, stuff can just jump out of the bush in front of you. One night, I had to go and do an emergency. Uh, uh, someone was dying in the Wyndham Hospital, and they asked me to come and uh, say farewell and get the last rites to them. So, in the hundred ten kilometres. I hit a hundred kangaroos. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and uh, the special design Bulbar was designed to throw them off, um, and that's something. But to get there and for the person dying, you, you um, so they just jump. Like see the lights of the car, and now the cane mask just jump into them. Right. Uh, it was just so sad, but nothing else you could do. So. Right. Um, and that was always the, the great danger. The worst were horses. Mm. Um. Uh, I'm once coming to Horse Creek, I saw horses uh, running wild ones, kind of across the road. So I uh, slowed down. They went across the road and I uh, accelerated again. I needed to find they turned around and one ran in front of me. So I had to do a um, handbrake uh, 180 turn. You spin the wheel, pull the handbrake on and uh, end up facing the other direction, just miss the horse. You know? Wow. Horses, they roll up your bonnet and come to the windscreen because you knock them off their feet, whereas other things hit the front of the car. Yeah. You know, so mm. so um, with the radio, when did you ever have to personally use that radio yourself to call for help? No, I was very fortunate. I uh, didn't have to do that, but you listened in and you'd often call ahead to stations letting them know you were on their track. So if you didn't turn up, they would come looking for you. So yeah. uh, that's why we kept uh, communication with each other so people knew you were coming in or not. My, Could you explain uh, a little bit more about the Natter band that you were mentioning before, a little bit uh, earlier, about yeah. well, um, how the community used the radio? Well, about midday, you're allowed to come on, and that's where they would just talk to each other. Everyone would go free for all, uh, and they'd, they'd organise um, things, the baptism, and weddings, and funerals, all those be organised uh, on, the, on the phone, on the radio, because there wasn't any phone, there wasn't any satellites, uh, stuff like that in those days. 
uh, and um, and then you'd hear they'd have uh, end of uh, stock camp um, parties and celebrations and stuff like that, yeah. all those sort of things, or um, you know, or if a road train had got bogged where it was, and they talk about this, or everything came up about on that event time. So everybody um, would tune in just to hear yeah. what was going on. It was, oh yeah, so it was free as I did. Yeah, yeah it was, you got to know what's going on in the whole community, so it was a very important thing to listen to. So my call sign was Eight Whiskey India Bravo. So that was my uh, call sign on the uh, Flying Doctor network. So the, the man to say, people often think of the Flying Doctor, uh, it just they think of the aeroplane, uh, the uh, pilots, the medical staff, the doctor or the nurses on board. But uh, Flynn's view and um, our view too in Bush Church A was the amount of safety it tried to create involved everything from a, a medical chest on stations that was locked uh, and uh, people would be talked through giving them medicine. Uh, it was the whole radio network as well that created this mantle of safety so we could um, get early response to things and people could be assisted um, in those situations and, and that meant the flying doctor could come sooner rather than later. Right. So it was, was a, the mantle was uh, quite uh, encompassing and it's what helped the uh, bush to survive and to grow to what it is uh, today. So. Right. And that mantle of safety is very much still um, uh, a basic principle for how the Royal Flying Doctor Service operates today. Uh, we have telehealth these days using the internet, using satellite. Mm -hmm. um, we have still a huge um, there was no Zoom of, or anything like that then. <laughs> no, no. We, we do use Zoom to it. Anyway, there's all manner of different technologies that we use in different ways these days to make sure that we bring uh, the medical care or the assistance that various communities need. Um, even our medical chests, uh, we now have three and a half thousand medical chests mm. around the country under various custodians. Um, that mantle of safety it really is, you know, what, what is needed for each individual community to bring them assistance and allow them to be able to live, work or travel. And the matter of safety got expanded too because they did School of the Air as well. Well, the School of uh, the Air is an interesting story because it was actually created by one of the board members of the Flying Doctor way back mm. and she said, well, this radio service, it's really working well and we could actually educate children who are in isolated areas using this radio system. So though it's not the same, it is very much based on that Royal Flying Doctor service network initially set up way back in the early mm. 30s. It was. So I, I, some stations would pull together and they would uh, the kids would come into one station, they'd stay over the week there uh, and they'd have sometimes have a governess or a, um, a, a bit of a junior teacher and they do school of the air with them as well. I mean, I would sometimes go there and then say, uh, well, you, you only come so often, so we'll give you a whole day to do your religious instruction. So I'd, I'd sit with the kids for a whole day from different stations and do a bit of our religious instruction with them and that sort of thing. Another time uh, you would see uh, us there and uh, here's the kid comes and he's in his uh, scout uniform and he gets the flying uh, doctor radio, grabs the microphone and they all talked to each other, div, div, dob, dob. They did all this. Here he is on his own at our station, you know, nearest station 500 kilometres away. Yeah. And these uh, scouts got together uh, on the radio each week. And uh, that still uh, happens uh, today too mm, with the Lone mm, Scout program. It's yeah. amazing. These things have been going for 50, 60, 70 years. So this vision of Flynn and the flying uh, uh, not just being medical but the, the particularly the radios that, uh, that uh, Traeger and um, – uh, and the others all developed, uh, really uh, um, gave a quality of life for the Australian bush that 
would have been really been missing if that had not taken place. So. Mm. Now, your original posting up there in Western Australia, remote Western Australia, was for a year, but you ended up staying much longer. How did that happen? Was it well? They told. They used to, actually two years the first up. It was so arduous. They never um, had their clergy, and they never signed them up for any more than two years in those days. It's a bit different now. Um, but we extended three times. So we uh, Stupford, we had a, a mission to do there, and uh, our third child was born there. So our, our, the, the kids were quite acquainted to it. So that wasn't a problem. Uh, and they had a wonderful bringing they used to go to school with a bare feet. With the Aboriginal kids as well, everyone went to school barefoot, <laughs> right? And, uh, or uh, thongs when it got really hot. Did uh, you ever have to be a first responder yourself for um, a visit where the flying doctor had to be called? Sometimes I did hear be, um, uh, there was there was something going on, and you know, and the flying doctor was going somewhere. I might be near a hospital, like I'd be here at Horse Creek. I said, "Well, I'm only twenty minutes from Horse Creek," so I would fly in and then uh, go and help the nurses. Uh, and uh, you do things like uh, they, they've already had a patient load and then you, there's an emergency load, they've got to get everything ready and they're trying to stabilise a patient for uh, the, the flying doctor to be able to evacuate them. And sometimes I'd end up um, holding a tube, uh, an oxygen tube for someone, uh, that sort of thing, uh, calming them down. Sometimes they, uh, they would ask me to say a prayer for them. Uh, you know, some uh, say, could you do a last night prayer just in case I don't make it? And this sort of thing, you'd do some of that. Other times I would just talk to them. Um, some of them were terrified. They'd never been in an aeroplane before. Then now they're going. So being a, uh, a priest and a pilot, I could talk to them uh, with a bit of pastoral care, but also talk to them about, look, uh, as you start to roll away, you'll feel the plane pull up and that's and could explain to them what was going to happen in the flight for them and just try and bring a, a bit of peace to them. And so that was uh, quite helpful. So being just having a, the nurses having another um, person who um, could just stay with a patient while they w- were getting everything ready was a, a great um, blessing. We, so we worked together as a team. Oh, that's fabulous. Do you think that working in remote Australia has changed your view on life and on the Australian culture or mindset? It, it teaches you to, um, to not get worried about very much. Anything can happen and it will happen. And just to learn, you learn to roll with the punches. Certainly helped me in my uh, military uh, Life, you know. Well, I have to tell you about um, the arduous though for the uh, pilots. I used to think of them often because I remember being asked, "Told, um, don't uh, use the uh, the big strip. Use the uh, flying doctor strip. It's near the homestead, right?" So I went in there and went into land. Well, it was a rough strip. It was full of potholes and all that sort of thing. And um, so, fortunately, I had. Uh, taking the wheel fairings off my uh, plane and I had put bush tyres on it. So I lost about five knots uh, of speed. But, I mean, I could uh, get into place and get out of it. You know? And they said, oh, I forgot to tell you, look, when you take off, right, go, go down on the left side of the runway till you see the red and white drum. Swerve to the right. Keep on the right side of the runway then till you see the tyre that's painted red and white in the tree. Then swerve back to the left, right? And this is why you're trying to take off. This is why I'm taking off. So I'm swerving from left to right and up the runway uh, and uh, then uh, peel off to the right because the hills at the back are pretty close. And I <laughs> said, so flying doctors know, the pilots all know this. So when they land, they just, they work through the, uh, they know the routine with the, the drum and the tyres. Yeah. 
<laughs> so I said, no, you didn't have to just be a pilot. You had to be uh, ready for uh, any sort of situation as well. And given the, the planes are pretty sophisticated uh, things, so uh, keeping them active and not crashing uh, was a, just a real testament for the uh, courage and the, uh, the ability of uh, the pilots in all those times. And God has a sense of humour because uh, I left the, uh, the bush and joined the army and my first time was airborne infantry. So I uh, had to become a paratrooper. So from flying aeroplanes, I then had to learn how to jump out of them. <laughs> so I jokingly say to many people now, I said, you know, I've taken off in many more aeroplanes than I've ever landed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because I've jumped out of them before they landed, yeah. Well, I think um, I've never jumped out of a plane and I think I would definitely need faith to be able to do that. Well, there's another little joke that says, if at first you don't succeed, yes. parachuting's not for you. Right. <laughs> Very good advice. Sage advice. Oh, Royce, over the last 40 years, your career has been rich. It's included working for the Defence Force here and in the USA. Um, and in later years, you've been working in Canberra and Queanbeyan and Tasmania and Goulburn. Do you think you'll ever go back to working in remote Australia? I'd love to go back fly again, but every time I mention it, my wife says, wonderful, visit me when you can, send me a postcard. <laughs> she, she says, I've still got sunburn from my time in the Kimberley. So I said, oh, aren't you coming? No. <laughs> so and, uh, probably just a dream I'll take with me. Probably. I'd love to fly again now, but uh, general aviation now has become so expensive. It's, it's probably the uh, uh, post my winning the lottery. <laughs> okay. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Royce, and thank you for sharing your stories and enlightening us on your work back in the 1970s in remote Australia. No. Well, I just give thanks to God for all the different people I met. They've all uh, added to my life because... Uh, uh, their view of life, the way in which they cope with things uh, just helps you to uh, be, uh, really appreciate the ingenuity that humans have to be able to survive even in the most difficult situations. It's fabulous. Thank you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to The Flying Doctor podcast. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode and thanks again to our major sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu Ute is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.